Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, we look back 55 years to the first Apollo manned flight. We pop over the Yarra River to ScienceWorks and Spotswood to listen in on a discussion about human spaceflight in today's world. And we peer into the future when the Artemis missions will land on the moon. And somewhere along the way, we will describe the newly launched mission to the metallic asteroid Psyche. So, first up, a bit of space show news. In keeping with our theme of human spaceflight, let's begin with a bit of spaceflight news on manned spaceflight. October the 26th, we expect to see Shenzhou 17 17, uh, launch into space by a Long March 2F rocket. And that'll be from the Jiquan Satellite Launch Center. It will be sending a crew of three people who have not yet been named on a mission to the Tiangong Space Station. So look out for that on October the 26th. Three people going up to the space station, the Tiangong China Space Station. There are already three people living there, and there will be a short crossover period before the three that are up there right now come down. Well now, back 55 years ago, do you remember which flight it was? Yes, Apollo 7, the first human space flight of uh, the Apollo program. And it was launched on uh, 1968, October the 11th, by a Saturn 1B rocket. The splashdown came in 1968, October the 12th. The mission duration was 10 days and 20 hours. Aboard were Wallace Sharar making his third space flight, uh, Don Izali, who's making his first flight, and Walter Cunningham making his first flight. Now, Sherrard died in 2007, aged 84. Uh, Izali died in 1987, aged 57. And Walter Cunningham died just earlier this year, on January the 3rd, aged 90. Well, this flight as I said, was the first manned Apollo flight. Uh, there had been some unmanned ones before that. The first United States three-person crew to orbit the Earth and the first United States television from space, which happened on October the 14th. The spacecraft was launched into an orbit with perigee or low point of 227 kilometres and apogee or high point of 301 kilometres. The inclination was 31.6 degrees to the equator, which means it went 31.6 degrees north latitude and 31.6 degrees south latitude and orbited the Earth every 90 minutes. Well, one of the persons, as we said, aboard was Walter Cunningham. And his a part of the space flight that 
doesn't normally get mentioned, and that is the splashdown. So here's Walter Cunningham himself explaining how Apollo 7 splashed down and what it was like. 24 minutes after we started reentry, the chutes opened in a solid overcast at 10,500 feet over the Atlantic. Then we were in the water, and 11 days in space suddenly seemed like 11 minutes. The voyage was already assuming that dreamlike quality of a moment long ago in another place, as though I was remembering scenes from an old movie. In the post-flight debriefings, it would be easy to describe events or tests or incidents that had filled our times, but impossible to describe the experience itself. It had happened to another Walter Cunningham, trying to recapture just the wonder world sensation of zero gravity seemed hopeless. Eleven days of living together, three men in a super-powered thimble, zero gravity, being for one chunk of time the news the world over, and a focal point in the lives of people throughout the world, it was already history and beginning to recede fast from my consciousness. The letdown from Olympus had begun. Splashdown came at 6.24 a.m., We slipped into the water as cleanly as a newly launched ship. We had pulled it off and were pleased. Probably 90% of the most critical events of the space flight, from the standpoint of crew safety, occur in the last 30 minutes. A safe landing requires retrofire going off smoothly. Satisfactory separation between the command and service modules. A properly executed re-entry. Ejection of the cone covering the parachutes. Deployment of the drogue chutes at 45,000 feet, the pilot chutes at 25,000 feet, and main chutes at 10,000 feet. And finally, a good splashdown. In normal circumstances, there was little the crew could do to improve performance, but a lot we could do to screw it up. Our reentry was nominal, and we were down. I piped up with the fighter pilot's right comment, well... We cheated death again. We might have laughed, except that immediately after hitting the water, the command module began a steady and rapid rotation, flipping us upside down, or at least three quarters. It left us hanging from the couch straps and looking out the side windows at a very choppy sea. But we had procedures for this. After letting the spacecraft cool for seven minutes, it took an equal amount of time to inflate the uprighting bags that would return us to an even keel. This was more than enough time for us to get sicker than dogs in spite of the motion sickness pills we had taken just prior to deorbit. There was a post-landing checklist we still had to perform, but for now, we were just hanging on, waiting for the spacecraft to upright. We also had planned on removing our pressure suits and slipping into our cleanest set of coveralls. After hanging inverted for three or four minutes with each man keeping his own counsel with his stomach, one is not only hesitant to move, but even to speak. Then Don asked, How do you feel? You going to get sick? Without waiting for an answer, he added, I think I'm going to throw up. From that moment on, I really had squirrels dancing inside my stomach. Even Wally was a bit concerned, and he had cast-iron guts. Don, bless his soul, had the most difficult assignment of all. As soon as possible after landing, it was his job to get out of the couch, go down to the lower equipment bay, 
and connect a VHF radio antenna. It was close quarters, head down in the bottom of the craft, with no air circulation. During training, Don would invariably get sick before the job was finished, and it would fall to me to complete it. And within a few minutes, the chances were good that I'd be as sick as Don. But it was all academic this time. Don got sick just hanging in the straps, while Wally and I fought off nausea until we finally got the hatch open. We kept an eye on it until each of us stepped happily over the side into the frogmen's raft. The command module was a great spacecraft, but on the water it reacted more like a cork than a boat. Once we stepped onto the deck of the carrier Essex, I began to shake off the post-orbital remorse, which must be akin to postnatal depression. After 11 days in space, seeing the U.S. Navy turned out on a carrier deck brings it home that millions of souls have been sweating out your success and your safety. My feeling at that moment was, thank heaven we came down in our prime recovery area. It would have been unthinkable to disappoint all those people by landing in the Pacific Ocean. Then there were the cards, letters, and telegrams waiting for us on board. They dramatized how many people had shared our flight as a personal ordeal and triumph. It made me wonder what I could possibly have done to warrant such support and how to justify all the faith invested in me. That was Walter Cunningham speaking of the events that happened 50 years ago, 1968, October the 22nd, the landing of Apollo 7. And uh, that paved the way for the follow-on Apollo missions. Now it's time on the space show to pop across the, um, the water to Spotswood. And an event that was held at Scienceworks Museum. And this is a discussion moderated by Museums Victoria. And we're going to hear from Gail Isles from RMIT. She's a former astronaut trainer. And Andrea Boyd, International Space Station Flight Controller with the European Space Agency. Although Andrea is an Australian. So here we go with this uh, talk on human spaceflight. Um, okay, well, um, I'm, I'm pretty keen. So, um, Gail, when, when do I get to go into space? Uh, and how much is it going to cost me? Okay, so the bad news is, is that if you've got an Australian passport, it's very unlikely that your government is going to pay to send you into space. However, if you feel in the mood to marry someone from America then your chances increase dramatically. Uh, and maybe NASA will select you. And they, they do selection once a year, so the, the probability increases a lot higher. If you're not in the mood to marry an American, then what you need to do is you need to uh, really have a good conversation about your superannuation and work out a way to allocate $200,000, $250,000, and you need to pay a private company. So, uh, so there's, a, there's a few different companies, is yes. that right, who are doing this like commercial space yeah. travel? Yes, yeah. so Richard Branson started all this with his Virgin Galactic, and they've been testing things in, in uh, the desert in America, and um, yeah, testing has happened, and uh, some of it was successful. Uh, there's also other companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX, and basically they're offering tickets for you to go up into space, you'll go up and you'll do what's a pa called a parabolic maneuver, 
which means you'll go up, and then when there's no more power anymore in the spacecraft, then you'll experience microgravity, and that will last for about 10 minutes. And you'll see the curve of the Earth. No flat Earthers, please. Not in this room. <laughs> I'm looking well, for Well, you. if they are, maybe they just need to save up that $250,000. Yes, go and And you can go and see it for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah. then you'll, you'll experience the microgravity, and then you'll come back down again, and you'll experience a few uh, extra Gs, maybe three or four Gs, and then you'll land on Earth, and you can call yourself an astronaut. So you have to get above 100 kilometers above the Earth's surface, and then you can call yourselves an astronaut. I mean, it's kind of not, not really that far, is it? Like, 100 kilometers, it's, you know, it's who was it far. who said, you know, space isn't that far away? It's, it only it's, takes eight minutes to get there. <laughs> That's Google right. Apples. That's right. Or if you're in a car, just an hour driving, if you could drive straight up, but yeah. we can't. Yeah. Not yet. Um, uh, okay, we're going to take some um, questions from the audience very soon. So start thinking about your questions, um, and Tom will have a microphone to bring around, so start thinking about them. But um, uh, there's, I might just ask Andrea um, about, about her story. Um, See, one of the things that I would miss if I went into space is um, it's just it's quite nice to have like a good glass of beer. Um, but um, but Andrea, you, t- you tell me that there might be a solution for that in space. Yeah, so there is no alcohol in space, um, and especially no bubbly drinks because you can't have bubbles. So if you this is a bit gross, but um, if you have something with bubbles in space and then you burp, you essentially vomit because there's no separation of liquid and gas in microgravity. So no bubbly drinks, no soft drinks, no beer, typical beer. So an Australian company um, thought thought that that would be a problem for us when we're going to go up. (laughs) And uh, a really great aerospace company in Sydney partnered with a really great brewery in Sydney and invented space beer that is suitable for space. It's similar to stout, has a really low carbonation, enough that it's still beer, but low enough that it doesn't make you burp in space. And um, yeah... It's, uh, I was it, part of the first taste testing group. It's you, really good. You got to taste test it. Yeah. And now it's available, um, well, it's around the place, so you can, you can get it now. All right. Yeah. I'll have to go and try it. Was it all right? Yeah, I, I, was, I like it. If you're into stouts and, and Guinnesses, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm glad that Australians have solved that problem. You're welcome, future <laughs> astronauts. Trust, uh, trust the Aussies, hey? Yeah, um, later on in the night, we're going to um, be talking about Australia in space um, again uh, with Andrea and all of the... Um, uh, what amazing capability Australia has, and we can now add space beer to that list. So, um, <laughs> excellent. All right, we're going to take some questions um, from the audience. So, if you've got a question, can I get you to put up your hand and we'll um, have Tom carrying that round? Um, okay, we've got one over here. Just um, maybe, yep, yeah, the young lad there. And then. Um, so, what kind of food do you normally um, eat up there? Mm, good question. So we've got. Um, so what, what? What kind of food do astronauts eat when they go? So to space? really good food, actually. The space food labs are in. Um, we have space food labs in America, in Russia, um, and in Europe. Um, the I can't comment so much on the American and Russian food, but the European is amazing because our food lab, space food labs are in France and Italy, so they're already pretty awesome. Um, and then we have a really fun um, bonus food program for the astronauts. So they have food usually comes in tins um, or in, ba- in pouches, so it's like thermostabilized or freeze-dried, um, and, and it's really tasty. I got to taste the first batch of new Italian food last week, and it was amazing. Um, and then we have this bonus food thing where the astronauts get to pick their five favorite dishes from their home country 
industry, the European ones, and we get a, a chef from that country. So for Tim Peake, it was Heston Blumendale, for example, and we send them to the space food labs, and then they figure out how to turn it into actual space food. So he got, if you're familiar with British food, um, a bacon sarni, um, some... <laughs> chicken something or others, um, a curry, of course, and something, yeah, so he, he got a few good ones, and um, we're coming up with the new Italian ones at the moment, uh, which are really good, but it, it's really genuinely tasty, um, it's not like the old ones that you see, and, and uh, yeah, it's super nice, so it, it's good food, and, uh, and it's nutritional, and do they have to dehydrate it? And then uh, so it some or? of them they can hydrate, yep. Um, so they've got a hot or cold water option. So if you want a tea or a coffee, you get a pouch that's got that in it. You stick it to the hot water one. Um, if you want to hydrate some food, yeah. Um, in Europe, we don't tend to do the dehydrated stuff very much. We'll do the pouches and you just um, heat it up in this thing that looks like a toaster, but it heats up the bag and then you can just eat it directly or you can eat it out of the tins. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really genuinely tasty. I've had it on oh, earth as nice. well. Yeah. And we saw a photo just before of someone like juggling some oranges, I think. Yes, so fresh fruit is really rare, but every, um, every cargo mission that comes up will bring up a bit of uh, fresh food. So things that will last. Um, so citrus is quite popular and apples. Um, so usually we send lemons, limes, oranges and some apples. And they're like the astronauts' favourite thing to have. They juggle and play with their food a bit and then they eat it. <laughs> yeah. this, just by the way, while it's up here, this is um, a video of Gail when um, mm. she's on the... Um, on the flight doing, a, what is this, a, like a record of how many yeah. um, uh, That's the record. somersaults. That's the record. Gail yeah. Isles, the world record holder for number of spins in space um, on that one. Well done. Okay, we're going to go to another question now. I'm going to come back to you, I promise, but we're going to go down here for another question. Then over there. How does your mental health change in outer space? Wow, good question. Good mental question. health. I mean, because... Um, you did say that it takes nine months to get to Mars if we want to go there, and then, so that's nine months back. So that's a long time. Mm. How are we going to... Yeah, is, is that a problem for people's mental health? Yes, yeah, so the astronauts are selected in the first place based on their uh, emotional stability, and also uh, there's, they undergo an awful lot of psychological profiling. So the thing we want to check is that they're going to be able to cope in these very, very stressful situations and circumstances. So you're going to be in a module for a very long period of time with the same people with no way out. Mm. So we need to check that the people can uh, handle conflict, can work through problems with one another in a, in a profitable way, and um, psychological mental health is very, very important for yeah. that. Yeah. Right now the astronauts train together for three years, for two and a half years before they go up to space. So they're all best friends, genuinely. Like, whatever country they're from, um, they all speak English and Russian together. And, uh, and yeah, they're all really best friends and get on really, really well. Um, and and uh, the International Space Station is a lot more connected nowadays as well. So we've even had internet, uh, which includes, like, a voice over IP phone. So, you know, similar when you call a real phone from a Skype um, or something similar. Um, so they can make a phone call to anyone on Earth anytime, and every Sunday they get a one-hour high-definition video conference, private conference with their families as well. Mm. So it's a lot more connected than it used to be, and um, we don't have issues on the space station, but definitely for f missions that are further away, um, need to figure out different ways of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very important to consider. Yeah. Okay, we're going to come back over here um, to this gentleman and then just keep thinking of your questions. All right, we've got a few people. Yeah. 
Um, just a quick question regarding the uh, private trips and um, when that will be available for the public to, um, to just go up there for a little while and come back down. Yeah, so here's a guy who wants to go to space. He's got his 250k ready. You're, you're all I'm good with that. I'm working on it. I'm working okay, on it. working on it. So, but when when can he pay Richard Branson or um, or the other uh, or Blue Origin or SpaceX to go yeah, up? Yeah, so probably within the next two or three years. So you need to get saving. Wow, next two or three High years. High interest bank accounts. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're gonna go. Yes, um, up right up there. What is? What is the greatest human problem in space? The greatest what, sorry? Human, human problem. problem. Human problem. Radiation. Yeah. And bone, bone demineralisation, I think. Well, so, cause yeah. Andrea, you told us before about the, the problem with um, like bone density, but it sounds like we've all, almost so solved So we've pretty that. much solved it, but you get a slight cumulative effect that right. over time you'll get weaker bones, um, and we don't have a full solution for that yet. So if they stay up to a year, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, in longer term, that might be a problem. But definitely accumulated radiation as well. So every astronaut has a radiation kind of counter, and um, it's very conservative, and they're not allowed to go above that. And once they kind of get close, they, they're not allowed to go on space missions anymore just for their own health. Yeah. But for long-term ones, we won't have the protection of um, the Earth's magnetic field for radiation. So that's going to be a really big one that we haven't figured out how to solve yet. Yeah, there's just been research recently into the ages of the Apollo astronauts, and it turns out that they had their doses were so high just from a very short mission Mm -hmm. on the moon that it affected their heart and meant that their rate of heart disease and heart failure was significantly higher than the astronauts who have just spent six months on the ISS. And it's because at the moment we're protected. And the ISS is a 400 kilometers up. Yeah, um, so we're protected high. as well. Yeah. So the, the ISS is sort of close enough to Earth that it's still within the yes. magnetic field. Yes. Yep. And so that r- dangerous radiation that you were talking about er- earlier, that doesn't kind of, that gets blocked out from yep. the ISS. So they're safe there, yep. but going beyond there, then yep. it gets to be a problem. So All right. for everyone who yep. doesn't want to be an astronaut, for those of you who want to be engineers and scientists, what we need is your bright ideas mm-hmm. of how to protect the humans against this radiation. So you can still be a part of the amazing endeavour into space without even going there. All right, we're going to take a question. This one, just here, this young woman there. How did you get into your line of work? Because it's basically my dream job. So what did (laughs) you do to get uh, How did you get into your line of work? Because we've got a few people here who want your jobs. Look out. (laughs) I would love it. I'm the only Aussie, actually, in the whole space mission control so I'd love to not be the only one so please do come and join um, I, I'm a mechatronic engineer so I, um, I studied in Adelaide and a little bit in South Korea and I worked um, in Europe and in America they're really weird about having masters and they don't understand what honours is so I struggled a lot with getting them to figure out the degrees um, so as to get around it I worked for five years before I applied to go over there uh, so I worked in FIFO mining, actually, um, to get real world, and that was fantastic. Loved it. Um, big control room, really complex systems. Not that dissimilar to space, and it's high risk and everything as well. Um, so I worked in that, and then 
um, did lots of space volunteering things on the side. So already you, there's lots of things you can be involved in as a student volunteer, as a private volunteer, um, lots of different organizations and different programs and things like that. And when I applied and I had five years of professional engineering plus... Um, plus... Uh, <laughs> Uh, plus about 10 years of volunteer space stuff, they counted it together when I applied um, for my position and I've been there for about seven years now. So yeah, a degree in engineering or science or medicine um, is... is, uh I Good think way up to start. there, and then yep. um, do lots of volunteering things as well. And there's a ton of stuff you can do in Australia, um, yep. especially here in Melbourne. There's really good facilities like VSEC, like the science museums, and um, really, yeah, awesome and space specific. If you ones. go down to, down to the pumping station, there's heaps of like community groups and student groups who you yeah. can get involved with. Gail, I'll get you to give you a very very brief answer to that question. Then we've got time for one more question, um, and then we might have to, have to wrap it up. But how do we get your job? Uh, so I, did, I followed a very unconventional route. I spent a long time getting my bachelor's degree in physics, and I worked at the same time. So I worked as a lecturer in a college in England, and then I did a PhD in physics, and I always had the goal, I want to be an astronaut. So my goal was always, I want to go into space. And I looked at the CVs of all of the astronauts and picked out the one I liked best, which was generally a scientific profile, And then all the people did lots and lots of other things as well. So they did skydiving, they flew aeroplanes, and uh, lots of volunteering and lots of extra activities. So I did as much stuff as I could at the same time that I brought up two children on my own, which wasn't easy. And I got a postdoctoral fellowship after my PhD with the European Space Agency. And I worked for them for a couple of years as a researcher doing all of these microgravity flights. And so I ended up with a degree in science, a teaching qualification and experience in zero G. And that meant that I was on the very good track to become an astronaut, didn't quite get the seat, but then went on to become an astronaut instructor. So I was of the impression that um, astronauts had to be, um, had to have like 20-20 vision, but... um I've recently become a trainee pilot and they didn't actually ask about my vision at all. So what's the situation with... Um, so do astronauts have to have 2020 vision? No. No, not anymore, no. Yeah. Sweet. There's <laughs> yeah. plenty You're allowed of to have uh, corrections as well. Yeah. It's, um, it's different, yeah. If you look at any ISS video, you'll see plenty of the astronauts wearing, wearing glasses. glasses. <laughs> well, yeah, also because of the fluid, though, they're... The, mostly the males, their vision gets a bit worse in space, so we have a stash of glasses because we know that they're going to need them. Um, but yeah, you, it's not 20... Yeah, you don't need perfect vision anymore. You're, right. you're going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you so much, Gail. Um, Gail is based right here in Melbourne and does lots of talks around the place and things, so you can um, check out some of those talks. Andrea will be farewelling back off to Germany um, soon, yeah. but we're so glad you were able to join us. From ScienceWorks Museum in Spotswood, that was Gail Isles from the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology and Andrea Boyd, a flight controller with the European Space Agency. This is The Space Show. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. In the wee hours of Saturday morning, a SpaceX... Falcon Heavy launched for NASA a spacecraft 
to head out towards an asteroid called Psyche. Now, what's so special about Psyche is that it is thought to be made of metal, mainly iron and nickel. Well, we have a feature from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to, uh, and featuring a number of the people involved with the mission to describe how Psyche will see Psyche. I remember two Voyager missions launched in 1977. Shortly after launch, they turned around, they got the Earth and the Moon in the same picture. I've just been fascinated with imaging from deep space missions ever since, and I've been very fortunate to be able to create some of those pictures. Psyche is a, what's called an M-class asteroid in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. It's the 16th asteroid discovered back in the 19th century, and we think that maybe it's the remnants of a planetary core. All of the uh, missions I've worked on had some sort of an imaging device. Isn't that the first question that everyone asks? What does it look like? And so I've been dreaming about this object now for over a decade, and by then it'll be two decades I've been dreaming about this object. And then to see what it really looks like, what's more exciting than that? For Psyche, we know it's going to be a relatively dark object. So we have to have an instrument that can see in that sensitivity with the dark surface and still be able to resolve the features that we're looking at. The cameras on Psyche, we call them the Psyche Multispectral Imagers. They're a pair of identical cameras. They're a pair for redundancy, just in case we have a problem with one, we've got the other one. And with stereo, we can build what's called a digital terrain model, the surface of Psyche, which we're very interested in, in knowing at a high resolution. Using the different filters, we actually can infer geochemistry of the surface. We can also associate it with the gamma ray and neutron spectrometer data set to sort of really drill down into the composition of the asteroid. We'll also take pictures farther out into the infrared where these where the sensors are still sensitive and where we can get a little bit more information about the kinds of rocks and minerals on the surface. One of the other functions besides science for the cameras is that they are our navigation cameras as well. This technique that was invented back in the in the 70s called optical navigation. You take, take pictures of stars and star fields, kind of like you know, looking at a sextant on a ship hundreds of years ago. The same process is used in modern space missions as well. The instrument's actually being built by a company called Malin Space Science Systems. They built the LRO camera, they built MassCam, they built MassCam-Z, they built numerous other cameras that have flown to Mars. And they do the final fabrication and quality control before then delivering that instrument to JPL. No deep space camera system like this has ever been built. However, the components that go into the cameras all have a lot of experience in space, a lot of what NASA calls heritage. When we get to Psyche, we'll go into orbit. The imager will primarily work during orbits A and B to get the images, to characterize the surface features, to make the topographic map, and to get the color images, which will hint at the composition. Standard plan is that we're pointed straight down and we're snapping pictures as 
the asteroid rotates underneath them. Usually the most important image that everybody gets excited is that first image that we acquire that you get back. We are super committed on the Psyche Project from PI, Lindy Elkins-Tanton, all the way down to sharing this experience with the public. I think the only thing we know, and that's you know, based on you know, NASA's 50, 60 year experience now, is that it's not gonna look like what we think it's gonna look like. And it's gonna be really interesting, uh, whatever we find. The way to understand how our solar system has evolved, we really have to gather more information about these planetary bodies. Psyche is an incredibly exciting mission to study an asteroid that is truly unique. The reason that Psyche is unique is that it is metal rich. We are seeing what we believe could be the core of a protoplanet. As the science community has become interested in Psyche, there have more observations been made, and the measurement of Psyche's density has come down over the years to something that is more sort of more dense than a rocky body, um, but less dense than it was before. So we don't really know what this interior structure would look like. And gravity is the way that we are going to study the inside of this. So gravity science is different than most of the other science investigations because the other science investigations build an instrument and they put that instrument on the spacecraft. The interesting thing about gravity is that we don't have a dedicated instrument to measure gravity. What we do is use the radio signal that we use to track and communicate with the spacecraft. We send our radio signals from Earth they go up to the spacecraft, and the spacecraft takes those signals and turns them around and sends them back to us to measure exactly where the spacecraft is in relation to the asteroid as we're orbiting the asteroid. Psyche has a high-gain antenna, which gives us our highest data rate to go back to Earth, and it also has several low-gain antennas on the spacecraft. So using both the high-gain antenna and the low-gain antenna, we'll be uh, able to uh, accurately track the motion of Psyche's spacecraft. So by accurately tracking the motion of the spacecraft, you can see something about the underlying gravity field. And once you know about the gravitational variation, then you can say something about the interior structure. We will do gravity science uh, data collection in all four of the orbits. The, the mission has four orbits, A, B, C, and D. We can't just go down to the best orbit to do gravity science because we don't have enough knowledge yet of the gravity to find a stable orbit there. I designed sort of a, a, a series of steps to get us from that highest altitude orbit where we wanted to be in an orbit that was completely outside of any significant perturbations. Then we go to orbit B, and that's where we do a lot of imaging, but in addition to doing a lot of imaging, we also collect better gravity science data. But the most critical orbit is orbit C. That's where we are going to be gathering most of the critical science that we can get from gravity science. It is a moment of pure joy when the data starts coming back. There has never been an instance 
where we have gone to another planetary body and made new observations where we didn't have fantastic discoveries. Psyche is really going to provide a unique piece of the picture because of the fact that it is uh, such a metal-rich body. We just can't wait to study it. And we do need to point out that it will take six years to reach the asteroid Psyche. 88.3 Southern FM. Let's take a trip to the moon. Come on, let's go for the moon. I want to go to the moon. Let's take a trip to the moon. Thank you and good afternoon. I'm Katherine Hamilton with NASA's Office of Communications. Thank you all for joining us for our announcement of the regions NASA has identified for landing the next Americans on the moon during Artemis III. Within these regions, there are multiple potential landing sites for Artemis III where the first woman may set foot on the lunar surface. Today, we will announce the regions near the lunar south pole that are under consideration for an Artemis III lunar landing, bringing us one step closer to returning humans to the moon. Joining us on the line today to provide more details are Mark Kirisich, Deputy Associate Administrator for the Artemis Campaign Development Division at NASA Headquarters, Jacob Bleacher, NASA's Chief Exploration Scientist at NASA Headquarters, Sarah Noble, Artemis Lunar Science Lead for the Planetary Science Division, NASA Headquarters, and Prasun Desai, Deputy Associate Administrator for the Space Technology Mission Directorate at NASA Headquarters. First, we'll hear from Mark Kirisich. Mark? All right, good afternoon. Thank you, Catherine, and welcome to everyone who is joining us today. And that leads us today. Today, Jake Bleacher, Sarah Noble, Prasanna Desai, and I are here to announce some really exciting news. The 13 specific regions around the South Pole of the Moon that we have selected as potential Artemis III landing locations. Uh, Artemis mission planners, people that work with me, NASA's Human Landing System program at the Marshall Space Flight Center and their prime contractor, SpaceX, have worked very closely with our agency's scientists and technologists to identify these 13 regions that you're going to hear more about today. And what you're going to hear more from our other speakers that all of the regions that we have selected, all 13, have both utilization value. What that means, they're a value to the scientific community and the technology community. People want and need to do things there as well as meet the Artemis mission planning constraints, which can be challenging. This will be the first time we will land a human lander at the South Pole. It will be the first landing of a starship, so we have to pay close attention to the engineering and safety constraints of the mission and the vehicle. About two years after, after Artemis 1, in 2024, we will launch Artemis 2, which will be the first time people will ride uh, aboard Orion and also the first time that people will return uh, to, lunar or to, to the moon since Apollo 17, an extremely important flight that, uh, that will set the stage for the follow-on Artemis mission. About that time, shortly thereafter, SpaceX, our prime contractor for the, uncrewed, for, for, the, for the human landing system, they will perform an uncrew with no people on it test of the, of the HLS. That will be extremely important. And all of this culminates in late 2025 with 
our Artemis III flight, which will be our first Artemis crewed lunar landing, marking the first time a woman will walk on the moon and also the first time we humans have visited the South Pole region. We, we've talked about this before. You're going to hear more about this today, but we're, we're going back to the moon for several reasons. First of all, for science discovery, to learn more about ourselves, more about where we came from, planetary processes. We're going to advance technology. Things we'll do just, just in creating the vehicle and systems that support people, but also things we'll do specifically on the surface of the moon will advance technology, help all, all people. And also, we're using this experience to prepare for a trip to Mars. We're going to demonstrate the systems we need. We're going to learn how to adapt, protect, and take care of the human body. And we're also going to learn how to use lunar resources uh, to get to, to Mars. Our Artists 1 and 2 missions will demonstrate the Space Launch System, Orion, our exploration ground systems, and also the space communications and navigation networks we need to do this mission. But to accomplish the actual lunar landing, we will add two more key elements before Artemis III. One I've mentioned briefly, the human landing system, and also our exploration spacesuits. Um, SpaceX, as I mentioned, will provide the Starship, what's known as the Starship Lunar Lander, and they are very much into the development of that lander uh, as we speak. And, and we, NASA, just recently selected two companies, Axiom and Collins, that will build spacesuits. Now, when we selected the company, uh, they will, there are actually two different suits we'll be developing via this contract mechanism, one for the International Space Station, and one we will use uh, on Artemis III when we, when we people walk on the moon for the first time. Talk a little bit about the Artemis III mission. It's different from the Apollo mission. In the Apollo mission, the elements we needed were all launched on a single Saturn V launch vehicle. And in our architecture, it's a little bit different. If you've seen the Starship concept, uh, the Sp SpaceX will actually launch a fuel depot that will orbit the Earth, and then they will launch tankers, which will fill up the fuel depot. And when there is the amount of fuel we need in Earth orbit, the actual Starship that will take people to the surface of the moon will launch from the Earth and will fuel, will fill up with gas, if you will, in Earth orbit. It then travels to the moon, and it enters the orbit that will use to, to conduct our lunar operations from. It's called the Near Rectilinear Halo Orbit, NRHO. We use that acronym. It's a very stable orbit around the moon that gives us a very long look over the South Pole where we'll be landing. Once we've confirmed that the Starship is there and ready to receive the crew, then we will launch SLS on Orion from the Kennedy Space Center. Orion will travel to the moon and dock with the Starship in the NRHO orbit. We will spend a couple days docked, and then two of the crew will transit from Orion into the Starship, undock, and land on the moon. On the surface of the moon, we'll spend six and a half days. The crew will do work both inside and outside the HLS. Outside, we'll be doing field science, deploying instruments, collecting samples to bring back to the Earth. Inside, we will do various observations of the, of the human system and how, how they're adapting uh, to the lunar gravity. At the end of approximately six and a half days, the Starship will lift off from the surface of the moon, rendezvous with Orion and the NRHO. We will transfer the crew back into Orion, and Orion returns and lands in the ocean off the coast of San Diego, just like we will do on, the, on Artemis II. 
The subsequent missions we're flying are going to build on what we accomplished during this flight. Right after Artemis III, we'll begin uh, the, the buildup of the gateway. The gateway, as you know, is an outpost in lunar orbit that we will also use for science experiments, technology development, and also for Mars demonstrations, key Mars demonstrations. The gateway will allow us to spend more time in the lunar environment, so it gives us a longer stay capability. We'll be adding over the years additional surface elements, rovers. Rovers are extremely important because they give the crew mobility. We'll be able to travel tens of kilometers to explore. The crew will be able to explore different areas of the moon and a habitat for longer stays. We'll be developing key technologies, demonstrating surface power, in situ resource utilization, and more and more advanced science taking advantage of these uh, taking advantage of these infrastructures. And these, all of these things are important for our goals, you know, to develop this deep space economy, which is important to us, enhancing and maintaining our national leadership in space, and to help us on our long-term goal, sending humans, humans to Mars. So now I'm going to turn it over to Prasun Desai from the Space Technology Mission Directorate to talk about technology, infrastructure, and the future. Good afternoon. Um, this is Prasun Desai. Um, the Space Technology Mission Directorate enthusiastically uh, is part of participating in these discussions to understand and ask questions about how the selection of Artemis III landing regions and landing sites down the line may affect later missions. From STMD's perspective, um, we need to pro proactively plan and develop technologies and make them flexible enough to function in multiple regions. SDMD is already investing in and advancing key technologies relevant to later flights. We use our entire portfolio, including the Lunar Surface Innovation Initiative, to mature infrastructure-related capabilities for, for a sustainable lunar presence. One key area is power. Uh, we're developing technology to improve solar power like the vertical solar array effort uh, that's ongoing right now to mature deployable solar array technology alongside uh, participation and partnership with industry for use on the moon. We're also collaborating with the Department of Energy to develop nuclear power technology. And we recently announced three awards to three companies to develop preliminary design for fission surface power systems that could be used on the moon. Power uh, is limiting all other activities. So uh, this is one thrust uh, for us initially to provide the power that allows all the other systems to operate and work. And so this is where uh, a lot of our energies are being put into at this point. Um, the Science Mission Directorate's Commercial Lunar Payload Services, CLPS, uh, initiate, uh, initiative is key for getting our technologies to the moon to test. We have quite a few payloads manifested on upcoming CLIPS flights. One that we're very excited about is the in-situ resource utilization realm, which is Prime One, uh, which is a combination drill and mass spectrometer to drill into the reg uh, lunar regolith and analyze it for water and other compounds. Some examples of the types of questions we ask uh, related to the landing regions are, do the landing regions include multiple sites for both human and robotic landers? What impacts could plume surface interactions have? What are the terrain conditions in the landing regions regarding in situ resource utilization opportunities? And how could the terrain affect solar power production? SDMD looks forward to the upcoming discussions with the broader community. Through the Lunar Surface Innovation Initiative and Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium, 
We collaborate with industry, academia, across government to develop the technologies needed to explore the moon and afford with both human and robotic explorers. The Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium is operated by the John Hopkins APL facility, which is also hosting next week's league meeting. With the eventual site selection, we aim to learn everything we can about the terrain, lighting conditions, communications, and more to further improve the development and demonstration of technologies such as in-situ resource utilization, solar and uh, nuclear surface power, evacu uh, ex excavation and construction, as well as all the other systems that we will need for sustainable presence on the moon as we go forward. We'll now take a question from Marcia Smith of Space Policy Online. Uh, thanks so much. And I want to follow up on that a bit. I'm wondering what the contingency plans are in case something goes awry. So if you have a six or seven day mission and you choose a window when the landing site only has six or seven days of daylight and you can't get off for some reason, maybe you need an extra day to fix something. I mean, are you factoring in any margins in this just in case the uh, liftoff from the surface doesn't go as planned? And just more generally speaking, what are the contingency plans? How long could they stay on the surface if they needed to? Oh, yes, Marsha. <laughs> you know, NASA, we we look extensively. And by the way, this is Mark, by the way. Um, we are, look, Marsha, we look at all, all sorts of contingencies, ranging from, you know, when we're sitting on the ground, FLS Orion is sitting on the Earth, and we miss a launch window and have to go to the next one, so we're looking at that. Um, we and that that's why we have multiple sites, multiple regions. And then once we are on the surface of the moon, we're looking at contingencies. First of all, what if we have to leave the surface of the moon before the optimal point to leave, which is six and a half days? So let's say we land on the moon, something goes wrong, we have to leave an hour later. We have a plan for that. If we have to leave a day or two or three into our stay, we look at that. And then we also are looking at what happens if we miss our six and a half day and have to spend another six and a half day. So all of those are part of our contingency planning process. So it's something to look forward to, the next human missions to the moon. This has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie.